You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that was an excerpt of Vinnie Paz singing writings on disobedience and democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S. and beyond. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more, including all the back episodes, at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a piece written by Richard Wolf, published at rdwolf, that's wolf with two Fs, dot com. The U.S. economy excels at one thing, producing massive inequality. To grasp the sheer magnitude of U.S. economic inequality in recent years, consider its two major stock market indices, the Standard and Poor S&P 500, and NASDAQ. Over the last 10 years, the values of shares listed on them grew spectacularly. The S&P 500 went from roughly 1,300 points to over 3,800 points, almost tripling. The NASDAQ index over the same period went from 2,800 points to 13,000 points, more than quadrupling. Times were good for the 10% of Americans who own 80% of stocks and bonds. In contrast, the real median weekly wage rose barely over 10% across the same 10-year period. The real federal minimum wage fell as inflation diminished its nominal $7.25 per hour, officially fixed and kept at that rate since 2009. All the other relevant metrics likewise show that economic inequality in the United States keeps worsening across the last half century. This happened despite, quote, concerns about inequality expressed publicly across the years by many establishment politicians, including some in the new Biden administration, journalists, and academics. Inequality worsened through the capitalist downturns after 1970 and likewise through the three capitalist crashes of this century, 2000, 2008, and 2020. Nor did the deadly pandemic provoke soul-searching or policies adequate to stop, let alone reverse, the ongoing redistribution of income and wealth upward. No advanced economics is required to grasp that divisions, bitterness, resentment, and anger flow from such a persistently widening gap between haves and have-nots. Among millions who search for explanations, many become prey for those mobilizing against scapegoats. White supremacists blame black and brown people. Nativists, calling themselves patriots or nationalists, point to immigrants and foreign trade partners. Fundamentalists blame those less zealous and especially the non-religious. 
Fascists try to combine those movements with economically threatened small business owners, jobless workers, and alienated social outcasts to form a powerful political coalition. The fascists made good use of Trump to assist their efforts. U.S. history adds a special sharpness to the search for explanations. The dominant argument for capitalism in the 20th century after the 1930s Great Depression was that it, quote, produced a great middle class. Real U.S. wages had risen, even during the Depression. They were generally higher than elsewhere across the globe, and especially in comparison with those in the USSR. High wages showed the superiority of U.S. capitalism according to the system's apologists in politics, journalism, and academia. Demolition of that middle class at the end of the 20th and into the new century pained especially those who had bought the apologies. And indeed, the Great Depression and its aftermath had lessened inequality significantly, enabling such a defense of capitalism to have some semblance of validity. However, for that defense to be persuasive required two key facts to be forgotten or hidden. The first is that the U.S. working class fought harder for major economic gains in the 1930s than at any other time in U.S. history. The Congress of Industrial Organizations, CIO, then organized millions into labor unions utilizing militants from two socialist parties and a communist party. Those parties were then achieving their largest ever numerical strengths and social influences. That is how and why, together, the unions and the parties won the establishment of Social Security, federal unemployment compensation, a minimum wage, and a huge federal jobs program, all firsts in U.S. history. The second fact is that capitalists in the 1930s and afterward fought harder than ever against each and every working class advance. The, quote, middle-class status achieved by a large portion of the working class, by no means all, and especially not minorities, happened despite, not because of, capitalism and capitalists. But it was certainly clever propaganda for capitalism to claim credit for working-class gains that capitalists tried but failed to block. The reduction of U.S. economic inequality accomplished, then, proved temporary. It was undone after 1945, particularly after 1970. Capitalism's normal trajectory of deepening economic inequality resumed through to the present moment. Simply put, capitalism's basic structure of production, how it organizes its enterprises, positioned capitalists to reverse the New Deal's reduction of economic inequality. Much of the temporary U.S. middle class is now gone, the rest is fading fast. Over the last half century, U.S. capitalism brought inequality to the extremes surrounding us now. No wonder a population once persuaded to support capitalism because it fostered a middle class now finds reasons to question it. In capitalist enterprises, tiny minorities of the persons involved occupy positions of leadership, command, and control. The owner, the owner's family, the board of directors, or the major shareholders comprise such minorities. The class of employers. Opposite them are the vast majorities, the class of employees. 
The employer class determines exclusively what the enterprise produces, what technology it uses, where production occurs, and what is done with its net revenue. The employee class must live with the consequences of employers' decisions from which it is excluded. The employer class uses its position atop the enterprise to distribute its profits, partly to enrich itself via dividends and top executive pay packages. It uses some of its profits to buy and control politics. The goal there is to prevent universal suffrage from moving the economic system beyond capitalism and the economic inequality it reproduces. Deepening U.S. inequality flows directly from this capitalist organization of production, its class system. Occasionally, under exceptional circumstances, rebellious social movements win reversals of that inequality. However, if such movements do not change the capitalist organization of production, capitalists will render such reversals temporary. To solve the extreme inequality of U.S. capitalism requires systemic change, an end to capitalism's specific class structure pitting employers against employees. If production were organized instead in enterprises, factories, offices, stores that were democratized, one worker, one vote, as worker cooperatives, economic inequality could and would be drastically reduced. Democratic decisions over the distribution of individual incomes across all participants in an enterprise would far less likely give a small minority vast wealth at the expense of the vast majority. The same logic that dispensed with kings in politics applies to employers in capitalism's enterprises. Next up is a piece by the Boycott Times at boycottx.org. This is written by Lifestyle, L-Y-F-E-S-T-I-L-E. What the fuck is neoliberalism? Cornell West, a boycott board member, has been quoted calling Joe Biden, quote, a neoliberal disaster, while Branko Milanovic describes Trump as the ultimate triumph of neoliberalism. So which one is it? If Trump and Biden are both neoliberals, what the fuck is neoliberalism anyway? I know what many of you are thinking. What does neoliberalism have to do with me and why should I care? Let me try to explain. The term is being used in academia and in the media to conceal the evils of a system that is destroying our communities. A term that sounds like it is progress, but is really just the rich justifying their hoarding, cheating, and stealing. Politically, liberalism, or quote, a liberal, is associated with someone on the left. Merriam-Webster defines political liberalism as a quote, philosophy based on belief in progress, the essential goodness of the human race, and the autonomy of the individual, and standing for the protection of political and civil liberties. Sounds good, right? Economic liberalism, however, is defined in the same dictionary as, quote, a theory in economics emphasizing individual freedom from restraint and usually based on free competition, the self-regulating market, and the gold standard. 
Side note, self-regulating market doesn't exist. This is where things get twisted. Neoliberalism is the marriage of the two definitions sprinkled with hate, or as Merriam-Webster puts it, a neoliberal is, quote, a liberal who de-emphasizes traditional liberal doctrines in order to seek progress by more pragmatic methods. What the fuck? Dictionary.com defines neoliberalism as, quote, an outgrowth of the liberal political movement that is more moderate than traditional liberalism, especially in its embrace of free market capitalism. What does that all mean? A neoliberal would tell you that it means the answers to all worldly problems can be found in the market by means of capital and innovation. But what it really means is that it's all a game of pimps and hoes. Neoliberalism is a theory that believes money is God. It places the accumulation of wealth of a few over the well-being of everyone else. People who will never have access to wealth will work for, vote for, and defend the elites because they have swallowed the lie that everyone who works hard has a shot at becoming, quote, a boss one day. Don't believe the hype. This system requires an underclass, and there are people who will live and die in poverty, not because they are undeserving of success, but because neoliberalism and capitalism require it. Wu-Tang told us about the trials and tribulations of neoliberalism in their track, Cream, or Cash Rules Everything Around Me. Cream equals the American dream, a dream that is constantly being pursued by people from all walks of life. A dream that is destroying our lives. Carlin told us that, quote, It's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. And George Monbiot writes, quote, Neoliberalism sees competition as a defining characteristic of human relations. It redefines citizens as consumers whose democratic choices are best exercised by buying and selling. A process that rewards merit and punishes inefficiency. It maintains that the market delivers benefits that could never be achieved by planning. During a global pandemic, many good people have been risking their lives to organize and fight the ceaseless police brutality in this country. White supremacy is being challenged in the streets of America, and politicians are scrambling to find a way to pacify the most vulnerable amongst us, while simultaneously staying in the good graces of the ruling class. They're saying, fuck a revolution, shut up, work hard, and maybe one day you can be like these rich folks. Neoliberalism is why Biden can hear very loud voices from the people who got him elected and ignore them altogether. He has repeatedly reminded us that he and Harris are not socialists or radicals, as Trump had claimed. They are neoliberals, just like him, beholden to the banks and the almighty dollar, like every other president since Reagan. It all comes down to the free market and competition, code words for the rich maintaining control of everything. So universal health care for all is out, and a system that allows insurance companies to, quote, compete is in. We can't defund the police because the rich rely on them to protect their property and their interests. At one of his fundraisers, Biden assured his wealthy donors that he wouldn't, quote, demonize the rich in office and promise to, quote, no one standard of living will change. Nothing would fundamentally change. 
In the land of opportunity, too many of us have been lulled into thinking that we can escape crime, sickness, and inequality through the acquisition of affluence. Snap out of it, fam. Don't give up on your dreams, but we must understand that all people deserve adequate food, clothing, and shelter, as well as fair treatment under the law. Everyone I know is waiting on a meager $600 stimulus check, so they might pay a portion of an overdue bill or their rent or mortgage. The wealth gap is widening enough for many of us to fall to our end. The sooner we realize that the status quo is detrimental to most Americans, especially marginalized communities, the better. That is when we organize and end the reign of neoliberalism for good. As a neoliberal, Biden's incoming administration is primed to serve Wall Street and the military-industrial complex. For those who say America will revert back to the good old days of Obama, you might be right. We might go back to an Obama and Biden like greedy bankers off the hook after exploiting billions during the housing bubble crisis. Surely Biden, the man who wrote the 1994 crime bill and eulogized Strom Thurmond, has evolved over time, right? I mean, his VP is black, a woman, and an Asian, right? That has to count for something, right? A lot of us are looking forward to a diverse cabinet, and it looks like we'll get one. Cabinet full of firsts can be inspiring. But let's look beneath the surface. Since it's neoliberalism over everything, imperialism will always be on the table. For example, Biden has already appointed retired General Lloyd Austin as Defense Secretary, a man that oversaw the withdrawal of our troops from Iraq while quite possibly facilitating the rise of ISIS. Austin sits on the board of a military defense firm, Raytheon, as did his predecessor. So there will undoubtedly be more warmongering on the horizon. Obviously, the Biden-Harris administration doesn't mind putting black and brown people in high places, as long as they can maintain the status quo, which does not mean progress for the vast majority of black and brown people. Until neoliberalism is dead, freedom fighters will have to keep demanding justice for the people in the face of greedy Wall Street fat cats. And that is why we should know who we are fighting and understand their jargon. Neoliberalism which sounds like it should be a good thing, is driving the demise of our people and our planet, and it must be destroyed before it destroys us. So how on earth do we get there with the entrenchment of capitalism and the neoliberal model? How on earth do we get traction to change things? We can understand the prescription, like Dr. Wolf's piece, that lays out historically what that fight might look like. But then we get also into our day-to-day interactions and the enormous challenges that have been revealed. They existed all along. They were covered up. There was a facade built up that said, everything's okay. And only those people who were not okay, who the system completely failed to serve, understood that that was fake. But too many people saw only the facade. Everything's okay. Things are generally going in a positive direction. Once you break through and and see and understand, and, and the pandemic has certainly 
uh, created some some wider gaps for people to peer through and say, holy shit, everything's not okay. And Black Lives Matter pried those those little cracks open wider for more people to say, holy shit, things are not okay. It's that awakening that we need to continue to push forward and move forward. And that's not enough. Because the knowledge and understanding that that one of the big problems is capitalism and how our economy is organized doesn't get us to the place of beginning to change it. It's not going to change in one fell swoop. There's not going to be a revolution that removes the capitalists and, and all of those structures they've built up. It's too entrenched and replaces those with a better system. It's not going to be a one-year transition. It's going to be a, a decades-long transition. And many people have started that transition already. We need to find them, support them. Where we can't find them, we need to create them. All kinds of small institutions to replace the entrenched capitalist, economic, media, political institutions that build that facade and repaint it and speckle it. Those cracks that are that are shown and are pried open, they're working like hell to cover them back up. They're putting band-aids on. They're putting big visible band-aids on in some cases to say, hey, we're making it better. We're responding to you. That just lengthens, extends the lifespan of the system that's killing people. But there's people taking action now. One of those ways that people are taking action now really brought forward by the pandemic is mutual aid. This piece is published at shadowproof.com, written by Claire Bush. One year into pandemic, U.S. mutual aid organizers reflect and push forward. One year into the COVID-19 pandemic, mutual aid groups are still delivering money and services to the most vulnerable in their communities. The Solidarity Movement kept its momentum by adapting after it became clear this pandemic was more of a prolonged emergency than a short break in normal life. Radical strategies for building trust and community have influenced the work of nonprofits and more traditional organizing efforts. And while organizers express optimism over their community's continued participation in mutual aid efforts, the groups have begun to develop bigger plans. Jasmine Araujo is an organizer with Southern Solidarity in New Orleans. In July 2020, Araujo said that the start of the pandemic felt like years ago. Today, the mutual aid group is still delivering food, medical supplies, and hygiene products to the unhoused, while sourcing specific requests and funding from the community. Quote, We distribute food, we distribute clothes, shoes, any miscellaneous items people ask for, bug spray, wheelchairs. We write that down, she told Shadowproof. Araujo and her fellow organizers believe solidarity with the city's unhoused population 
looks like asking what people need instead of delivering charity. Among the group's 50 members, there are undocumented, unhoused, trans, and formerly incarcerated people. The composition of the group reflects broader goals of centering oppressed people in their work. Southern Solidarity considers themselves an anti-imperialist black liberation group. The group has delivered over 250 meals a day, every day, since the pandemic caused shutdowns around the country last year. Last October, a week before the mayor declared a state of emergency because Hurricane Zeta, the police posted a notice to clear an encampment with many unhoused people. It threatened that sweep would begin in 24 hours, which they knew could result in a loss of their shelter and personal belongings. Where unhoused people were meant to shelter during the state of emergency was unclear. Southern Solidarity organizers have helped move tents and shelters ahead of sweeps and have seen the police in action. According to Araujo, quote, Police are throwing out bedding of unhoused people. They love doing that at 4 a.m. They will clear entire camps of all their stuff. It is incredibly cruel. Organizers say the sweeps continued into the new year. Southern Solidarity makes it clear that the local and federal governments failed the city residents and continued to do so through a lack of social services. We're doing the work we're doing because of austerity measures, said Araujo. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, a Democrat, slashed money for social service departments in an effort to remedy the state budget crisis shortly after his election in 2016. The state's maximum unemployment benefit is $247 a week before taxes. Araujo recently brought Southern Solidarity's work to New York City's Lower East Side, where she grew up. She says she will use the same strategy of building community and listening to those in need in the New York chapter. Not all mutual aid groups felt able to maintain a consistent level of activity over the past year. COVID-19 Mutual Aid Group in Lexington, Kentucky, made a decision to stop taking new need requests. According to a statement from the group, they were able to distribute close to $15,000. The amount of money and services they coordinated reflects both the group's tireless work during a dangerous pandemic and the federal government's failures. Still, like many mutual aid networks, they maintain a Facebook group where individuals can post their needs or offer help. They also maintain a Google Doc, a favorite tool among mutual aid groups, where organizers left a simple statement. Quote, Removing red tape to access resources makes us a much easier alternative than current governmental and nonprofit structures. Mutual aid is not the same as charity. Virginia Shenandoah Socialist Collective had considered creating a mutual aid network prior to the state's shutdown in March 2020. We had been wanting a mutual aid network to materialize for a long time. Then COVID happened, and it felt like it was suddenly something that could no longer wait, said Haley Springer, a Central Committee member of the Shenandoah Socialist Collective and one of the founders of Shenandoah Mutual Aid. Like others, the group started delivering groceries, picking up medications, and helping vulnerable people stay home to stay safe. Shenandoah Mutual Aid is still cooking and distributing food, but as the pandemic dragged on, the group wanted to reflect on best organizing practices.
Ultimately, the 25 or so members decided to pivot towards the most vulnerable in their community, incarcerated and houseless people. Living houseless in Virginia's Appalachian Mountains requires long underwear, wool socks, and other winter gear. Moreover, unhoused people do not have access to bathrooms and coffee shops, libraries, or restaurants, which used to provide an informal network that people have relied on to meet the human need of having sanitary and private place to go to the bathroom. Springer explained. Shenandoah Mutual Aid raised $5,000 and organized with unhoused people in the area to try and get a portable toilet and washing station downtown. The deal is not done, but Springer is hopeful. Importantly, winning a portable toilet is not an end point for the collective. Quote, Our goal is not to just do this indefinitely, but to really try and organize these folks to the point where they can draw concessions from our mutual government to have their basic needs met, just the way anybody else who lives in the city is entitled to, Springer said. We're not trying to be a charity group. We're trying to engage people in a struggle to build a better world. It appears that some of the mutual aid strategies employed by radical, unstructured groups have influenced the work of nonprofits. The Mississippi Gulf Coast Mutual Aid Network is a program of the nonprofit Mississippi Rising Coalition. In addition to working on prison reform and education initiatives, the organization has wanted to establish a mutual aid network for southern Mississippi before the pandemic. When businesses shut down, the Mississippi Rising Coalition moved quickly to start distributing food and money for medications, utilities, and rent. Matt Lawrence is a board member of the Mississippi Rising Coalition, working on improving food access. Lawrence said the network that came out because of the pandemic provided a, quote, opportunity to transition from building a network of mutual aid into building a network of long-term food sustainability. Food security has been a major issue for the area for years. According to research by the Food Bank Network, Feeding America, Almost 20% of people in the state are considered food insecure, meaning their lack of resources affects their ability to eat regular meals. Currently, the Mutual Aid Network is harvesting crops from a local farmer's land. They keep a portion of the crops in exchange for labor. Some of the produce includes okra, sweet potatoes, mustard greens, natural greens, peppers, and squash. Lawrence and the Network have plans for community farming, too. In addition to local farmers donating land or meat, Lawrence wants to see small backyard gardens become more common in Hattiesburg. There are plots of land in the area that will hopefully be used for community-owned farming, where Hattiesburg residents would get a dividend from extra produce sold in community-owned gardens, community-owned greenhouses, according to Lawrence. Due to the group's nonprofit status, the network can receive funds through grants and larger tax-deductible donations. Shenandoah Mutual Aid and Southern Solidarity, on the other hand, rely on smaller individual contributions. The Biden administration's relief package promises an additional $1,400 in direct payments to Americans. The meager sum seems unlikely to disrupt the looming wave of possible evictions or record unemployment. Mutual aid groups are engaged in projects that will deepen community ties and help residents mobilize for better conditions, especially for those made the most vulnerable in society. 
It shouldn't have to be this way. These mutual aid groups are amazing and phenomenal and, and are one of the many things, the many ways that we might be able to transform this society. But things like mutual aid and GoFundMe point to the, the utter failure of our system to support everyone. Next up is a piece that is published at ProPublica.com. Nope, it is published at ProPublica.org and is written by Lila Eunice and Sarah Sneath. New research shows disproportionate rate of coronavirus deaths in polluted areas. The industrial plants in the Riverside, Louisiana city of Port Allen have worried Diana LeBlanc since her children were young. In 1978, an explosion at the nearby Placid Oil Refinery forced her family to evacuate. Quote, We had to leave in the middle of the night with two babies, said LeBlanc, now 70. I always had to be on the alert. LeBlanc worried an industrial accident would endanger her family, but she now thinks the threat was more insidious. LeBlanc, who has asthma, believes the symptoms she experienced while sick with the coronavirus were made worse by decades of breathing in toxic air pollution. Quote, That is the one time in my life I thought, I'm not going to survive this, she said. I'm going to become a statistic. I was that sick. New research conducted in part by ProPublica shows she could well be right. COVID-19 can be made more serious and in some cases more deadly by a specific type of industrial emission called hazardous air pollutants, or HAPS, according to new peer-reviewed research by ProPublica and researchers at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. The study, published Friday in the Journal of Environmental Research Letters, found this association in both rural counties in Louisiana and highly populated communities in New York. The analysis examined air pollution and coronavirus deaths in the roughly 3,100 U.S. counties and found a close correlation between levels of hazardous pollutants and the per capita death rate from COVID-19. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency defines HAPS as chemicals known or suspected to cause cancer and other serious health problems. Under the Clean Air Act, industrial facilities emitting these pollutants are subject to regulations. Hazardous air pollution may help explain the disproportionate number of COVID-19 deaths in communities like the West Baton Rouge Parish, home to Port Allen, with 39 deaths as of September 7. The parish's per capita death rate from COVID-19 ranked it among the top 3% of all U.S. counties, with at least 30 deaths. Several of its neighbors in Louisiana's Industrial Corridor also rank near the top of the list. The coronavirus pandemic, which has claimed over 189,000 lives across the country. When was this published? This is published last September. And across the country now, somewhere around 430,000 deaths in the U.S., including more than 4,900 in Louisiana. So that's numbers also out of date. 
offers a rare opportunity to study the public health outcomes of both short and long-term air pollution exposure. Because the virus affects the respiratory system, researchers have rushed to study the potential association between mortality rates and air pollution. Early studies, including one looking at particulate matter, distinct from HAPs, but often found with them, have suggested a link. Last year, the Times-Picayune and The Advocate and ProPublica published the series Polluter's Paradise, which used data from an EPA model to quantify levels of hazardous air pollution along the lower Mississippi River's industrial corridor. As the virus battered many of those same communities this spring, we wanted to determine whether air quality was contributing to high death rates. The SUNY ProPublica analysis uses pollution information from the EPA's 2014 National Air Toxics Assessment, a screening tool aimed at helping state agencies identify and measure the sources of HAPs. These pollutants can come from industrial facilities as well as from power plants and vehicles. NATA combines information on pollutants that affect the respiratory system into a variable called the Respiratory Hazard Index. The analysis found that an increase in the hazard index at the county level corresponded to an increase in COVID-19 death rates. This association existed at all levels of HAPS exposure, including levels that the EPA deems acceptable. The analysis controlled for a long list of variables, including population density, income, race, and age, as well as community health indicators such as prevalence of smokers, adult obesity, preventable hospital stays, and physical activity. A recent study by researchers from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health found that long-term exposure to particulate matter made the coronavirus more deadly. But EPA officials and industry groups have dismissed the research primarily on the basis that it lacks peer review, a standard but time-consuming process where new research is evaluated by independent experts prior to publication. ProPublica and the Times-Picayune and The Advocate sent the EPA a copy of the new analysis on hazardous air pollutants, which has been peer-reviewed, seeking comments. Anesta Jones, a spokeswoman for the agency, said that understanding the links between air pollution and COVID-19 is a complicated process that will take many years. The research in this area is just beginning, and EPA looks forward to reviewing papers once they are peer-reviewed and published, she said. The industrial corridor that stretches alongside the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to New Orleans is nicknamed Cancer Alley because of the perceived health risks associated with local chemical emissions. LeBlanc considered herself lucky because no one in her family has had cancer, but she does have asthma, and so do two of her three children. According to EPA data, West Baton Rouge Parish has more air pollution that affects the respiratory system than 99% of counties nationwide. Research has long supported an association between asthma and exposure to air pollution. While researchers are not sure how this happens, they believe air pollutants could prevent the body's immune system from being able to tell the difference between a harmless allergen and a dangerous particle, like a virus. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has said that people with asthma are at higher risk of getting very sick from COVID-19. In mid-March, LeBlanc began having flu-like symptoms. It started as a fever and cough. 
Then the second week it got doubly worse, she said. LeBlanc went to a drive through site in Baton Rouge to get tested for coronavirus. Her test came back positive. She was sicker than she'd ever been. Quote, I had nightmares. I had coughing. I had aches in my bones. I couldn't even touch myself, she said. That's how painful it was. LeBlanc has nearly recovered, but she said she still has not regained her senses of smell and taste, and she gets fatigued more quickly. She believes her debilitating symptoms owned partly to her compromised immune system. Now what causes your immune system to be down? Is it the air you're breathing? She asked. Dr. Michael Brower, a professor of public health at the University of British Columbia, said there is substantial evidence of a link between air pollution and respiratory infections. If you're exposed to a viral infection or bacterial infection, and at the same time are exposed to air pollution, that infection is more likely to become severe, he said. But air pollution can also have permanent effects on health that make COVID-19 symptoms more severe, whether or not a person continues to breathe in the polluted air. Vijay LeMay, an environmental health scientist with Natural Resources Defense Council's Science Center, said that short-term declines in air pollutants in New York City due to lockdown measures in March and April did little to protect populations suffering from long-term exposure. In some cases, damage to our lungs, our brains, our hearts from air pollution is irreversible, and there are certain harms inflicted by these exposures that can't be mitigated even after months or years of breathing cleaner air, said LeMay. ProPublica and SUNY researchers created a nationwide ranking of counties by combining two variables, COVID-19 mortality rate and the quantity of pollution affecting the respiratory system. First on the list is the Bronx, a borough that was hit particularly hard by COVID. Quote, the air quality issues here and the type of decision-making that's happened over and over has made us asthma alley, said Michael Johnson, an organizer from the South Bronx, referencing the local nickname of an area with one of the highest asthma hospitalization rates in the country. Waste transfer stations, fossil fuel power plants, heavy diesel trucking, Johnson said, listing the various sources of pollution in the South Bronx. We knew that what we had been fighting all these years was only going to make us more susceptible to COVID mortality. While all of New York City's five boroughs except Staten Island occupied slots in the study rankings top 20, the remainder of the list included more sparsely populated counties in Louisiana, Alabama, and Georgia that contain industrial facilities or power plants. Five counties in the top 20 are located on the lower Mississippi River in Louisiana's Chemical Corridor, including West Baton Rouge Parish. LeBlanc's son moved his family to a farm farther away from the chemical plants in the parish because of his concern about air pollution, and his mother is moving there soon. But a trucking company just north of the property is seeking a permit from the state to increase its air pollution. I do worry about my grandchildren, she said. One of her grandsons has severe asthma and allergies, at times requiring a nebulizer. It's just something we've had to live with, and that's the terror of it, she said. When LeBlanc's children were young, she had a bag packed at all times in case an industrial accident, ha accident happened and they needed to evacuate. I lived in fear of just having to pick up my babies and run, she said. I did everything I could for them. 
and here it's come to the next generation. Finally, a piece from Hood Communist, that is at hoodcommunist.org. It is written by Ready for Revolution. Why we say, fuck Black History Month. Since its founding in 1920 as Negro History and Literature Week, Black History Month has served as, quote, an annual celebration of achievements by African Americans and a time for recognizing their central role in U.S. history. Many of us share fond and some unpleasant memories of the yearly church programs, school assemblies, and essay contests, all organized around that shared sense of identity and history of perseverance. But as critical and principled Africans that know what's happening, the time has passed for us to engage with what this month has come to represent. We can look as recently as the liberalizing of Black Lives Matter to see an example of how black political agendas can be stolen and repurposed. In less than 10 years, we've gone from fighting white folks about the meaning of the phrase to seeing it plastered across billboards and city streets. Black Lives Matter once fulfilled a specific purpose, but has outlived that purpose and threatens almost to squander the radical potential that is fighting to outlive it. What then can be said of the 101-year-old Black History Month, a month where we are set to be bombarded by calls for the consumption of red, black, and green Apple Watches in the so-called United States, while children die in the Congo mining cobalt, a month where we are primed for collages and memes of our first black defense secretary superimposed on paintings next to Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey, all while AFRICOM continues to expand its grip in Africa. A month where Harriet Tubman is being celebrated as a new potential face of the $20 bill, while her descendants struggle without access to the U.S. dollar in the midst of a global pandemic. The great month that Carter G. Woodson established to raise the political consciousness of his people and instill a feeling of pride has been weaponized against us. The theme for this year's Black History Month celebration has been announced as Black Family, Representation, Identity, and Diversity. As the Black family continues to come under attack from every direction, lack of access to health care, predatory state and social services, police, lack of safe and fulfilling employment, and most of all, abysmal black maternal mortality rates. The Association for the Study of African American Life and History will honor black life this year by centering representation, identity, and diversity. All words we have come to understand don't amount to shit. In this statement, members of the Hood Communist Collective will outline what we have identified as four key ways in which Black History Month has been commandeered to work in the interest of the ruling class and paralyze the potential for radical movement building today. We then offer solutions to overcoming these barriers and propose a different framework, African Liberation Month. The Disappearance of Radical African Organizations Knowing one's past opens the doors to one's future. Our past knowledge funneled to us through colonized educations is riddled with half-truths. What does that mean for our futures? 
Black History Month's hyper-focus on remembering our past through the lens of charismatic leaders is intentional and should not be taken lightly. There exists a disconnect between black radical history and the mainstream narratives of black history that projects progress by collapsing gains made through organized struggle as the feat of just quote one man. The illusion that nothing has historically been won through organized struggle, but instead the hopes and dreams of one person is dangerous propaganda. During Black History Month, colonized schools uphold individuals apart from organizations. The people whose collective organizing was the backbone of a struggle towards liberation become background characters, if mentioned at all, to the exalting and exploitation of one man who then becomes a tool to assist in stitching legacies of resistance into the folds of the American dream. For example, we know of the nonviolent message of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but nothing about the Deacons for Defense and Justice, the organized collective of U.S. military veterans who protected King and others during marches and actions. These convenient retellings of our histories not only promotes individualism, but passivism too which works in step with rejection of organizations we see happening now. Why should we organize people when we only need a charismatic leader? That is the message that Black History Month gives us, among other fallacies. A quote, first black solution to liberation, entangled with the hierarchy and prominence of black male leadership, does not exist in a vacuum. As we see now, this constricting and revisionist retelling of black histories invites futures where signs of progress are only disguised regress. There has never been a moment in black history when there have not been many people organized to do many things on the ground to seek the liberation of African people. The ahistorical retelling of our history allows for isolating individuals away from the pulse of the movement and the people and to force the assimilation of their politics into American patriotism. This advances a pathology of forgiveness and hope. The manipulation of black excellence by normalizing this settler colonial nation has served as a breeding ground for manufacturing consent in how we understand black liberation. Black History Month has remained a constant assistant in that effort. We cannot afford to continue to allow the prioritization of individualism over the collective. Organizations and organized struggle create change, not individual actors. The Exclusion of Africa and the Diaspora Some people will respond to this section by screaming that the concept of Black History Month was designed to bring light to the specific experiences of Africans in the U.S., we believe that this micro-nationalist perspective of African people is symptomatic of the shortcomings evident with this so-called annual February commemoration. We reject the reduction of our experiences to just those of us within the U.S., and we especially dismiss references to African people anywhere that don't start by placing Africa in the center where she belongs. The reality for Africans everywhere within the Western Hemisphere, from Canada down to Chile, is that our existence in these colonial states is a direct result of nothing beyond how the vicious and violent slave raiders 
kidnapped us from Africa. Literally, if your great-grandparents ran left and the British captured them, this explains why you are in the U.S., Canada, Jamaica, Belize, etc., speaking English today. If your ancestors ran straight and the Spanish captured them, this explains why you are in the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Cuba, or Mexico, speaking Spanish today. If your ancestors ran right and were captured by the French, this explains why you are in Haiti or Canada, speaking French today. This is scientifically irrefutable, and despite whatever imaginary connection to the microstate that is cooked up by those who wish to deny Africa, the truth is objectively the truth. We will never be Americans, Canadians, Brazilians, etc., as Malcolm X told us 50-plus years ago, quote, If a cat has kittens in an oven, you don't call the babies biscuits. Africa and the rest of the African world is deleted from every context of life within the U.S. in a concerted effort by the capitalist system to convince Africans within the U.S. that we have U.S. exceptionalism and absolutely nothing else. The framing of Black History Month honors this misinformation because the continued advancement of the vision is essential to maintaining the international capitalist world order. Capitalism was built and is maintained upon exploiting Africa. The moment Africans within the U.S. wake up and realize this, the capitalists recognize this, even if we don't, their days are numbered. This is the reason even racist right-wing sources like the Anti-Immigrant Progressives for Immigration Reform, PFIR, enthusiastically and financially support efforts to turn Africans within the U.S. against Africans born outside of the U.S. This is also the reason there are over 50 million Africans within the U.S., yet overwhelming communities of these Africans can tell you absolutely nothing comprehensive about Africa beyond the racist stereotypes that pass as objective history. Whatever problems Africans experience in the Western Hemisphere, those problems didn't originate there. The seeds for the problems we face in 2021 and beyond were planted when our ancestors were captured in Africa. Any serious effort to reclaim our history must start by respecting that reality. The Erasure of Non-Cis Male African Revolutionaries when we see the Black History Month erasure of figures like Asada Shakur, Fannie Lou Hamer, Marsha P. Johnson, Ella Baker, Claudia Jones, Queen Nanny, Winnie Madikizela Mandela, Amy Jacques Garvey, Bibi Tidi Mohammed, Chief Funamilayo Ransom Kuti, King Danieri Basmula Eke Mwanga II, Mukasa, Queen Nzinga Mbande, and so many more. We see the connection to the erasure of non-cis-het revolutionaries today. Black History Month has become a colonial co-opted operation, therefore it cannot and will not be a safe space for queer, poor, and working class revolutionaries. We want to be clear that this is not an attack on the African masses. We are a good people and our only problem is that we are colonized. We know we've been brainwashed to accept and promote all forms of division, to keep the African nation divided so that the white supremacy can continue conquering us undisturbed. So we criticize the white power structure that controls us like puppets and not people. What this exclusion does is keep us all from getting free. 
Only through unity can we ever be free. Our people. Erasure and slander towards trans revolutionaries, women identifying revolutionaries, and queer revolutionaries will not succeed. Their co-opting and mutilation of Black History Month, turning it into a celebration of Africans who have sold us out, will not succeed. Their attacks on poor and working-class African leadership will not succeed. The agenda to sabotage African liberation theories like feminism, pan-Africanism, intersectionality, and socialism will not succeed. The Promotion of the Neo-Colonial Propaganda Despite the many lies told about poor, hapless Africa's unending dependency upon the charity of the Western world, the reality of the situation is that the entirety of the global economic system of capitalism rests on a foundation of stolen African land, labor, and resources. Africa has been trapped in a parasitic relationship with the West that is reinforced by structures of massive violence against the continent and its children for centuries, allying with a menagerie of traitorous neo-colonial leaders in order to steal African wealth and lives. But here in the snakes, the most visible boosters of the richness of African history and culture, tend to ignore this reality in favor of a singular focus on a particular kind of narrative and aesthetic, rooted in celebration of an apolitical spirituality, material wealth, and royal status. A recent example of this was a cinematic celebration of a fantasy African nation untouched by colonialism, Wakanda, as depicted in the Disney Marvel and U.S. Department of Defense's film, Black Panther. Black Panther was a wild cultural success, popular in the mainstream, but also particularly loved by Africans living in the U.S. It was a rare celebration of dignified, undominated African people, agents of their own history, and living self-determined. It was an emotional sight in the media for our people living in the belly. It was also a brightly colored, big-budget, heroic rebrand of some of the worst ongoing perpetrators of crimes against Africa. The reason why works like Black Panther, Beyonce's Black is King, Eddie Murphy's Coming to America, or any number of cultural productions that engage Africa in fantasy but never in reality, are able to get away with spreading capitalist imperialist propaganda in an Afrocentric vehicle, is because our people living in the U.S. simply do not know enough about Africa's present reality to recognize the harm that is being done. We are, after all, the same people who voted en masse for the first African U.S. President, Barack Obama, only to sit un in unconditional love and silence as his administration quickly expanded AFRICOM. The consequence of our action and then inaction has been a U.S.-led dominance of Africa's lands and peoples by foreign militaries and mercenaries. We have to learn and fight to defend Africa from the evil we pay our taxes to. We must reject any kind of Afrocentrism that does not engage with Africa's modern-day struggle to be free from exploitation. It's not enough to take on the look and feel of Africa in order to claim African identity and culture while hyper-fixating on our lives here in the States. We must learn about the real Africa, about the destruction and devastation that capitalism and imperialism are spreading on the continent, and how we can organize as one people around the world to stop it.
Conclusion As Jamal al-Amin, formerly known as H. Rapp Brown, warned us in 1969, quote, White folks will co-opt dog shit if it's to their advantage. Hood communist rejects any framework in which anyone gets to dictate the terms or themes of a month geared towards African people that is not from the African masses themselves. We reject a month that suppresses the memory of non-cis male African revolutionaries. We reject a month that embraces American exceptionalism and functions to separate the struggle of Africans living in America from that of Africans around the world. We reject a month that deprioritizes the history of radical African organizations and movement building in exchange for Hollywood hero narratives. We reject a month that allows America to make the history of Africa its own. This month, we encourage all Africans to center Africa in your politics and organizing. Join an organization fighting for the liberation of Africa and her people. Let us move forward and celebrate African Liberation Month in total unity, love, and appreciation of all Africans who have chosen the side of the people against white colonial capitalism. Forward to freedom, we march together. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more, including all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. You can also listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at MovingTrainRadio.com. Now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. When I talk about thinking outside the boundaries, I'm thinking that one of the boundaries set for us uh, is the idea of national power, of our national power, and of our national uh, goodness, that we are the superpower in the world, and we deserve to be the superpower because we're the best and the greatest, and we have the most democracy and the most freedom, And that's why terrible things are done to us, uh, because we are the best. That's kind of arrogant. (laughs) And that also is a sign of the loss of history. And we need to be taken down a peg and taken down to the level of other nations in the world and other peoples of the world. and you need, you, need, you need some history to be able to come down to earth and to see that the United States has behaved in the world like other imperial nations in the world. It's not surprising. We have to be honest about our country. If we're going to be anything, if there's anything an artist should be, if it's anything a citizen should be, is to be honest to be able to look at yourself, to look at your country as honestly and as clearly as you look at what people do elsewhere. And just as you can examine the terrible things that people do elsewhere, you have to be willing to examine the terrible things that were done here and done by our government. 
Langston Hughes, and some of you may know his work, great African-American poet, Langston Hughes, wrote a poem called Columbia. Columbia meant for him this country, the United States. You know, as Columbia has, you know, Columbus, Columbia, and that's us. He was addressing Columbia. He said, my dear girl, you really haven't been a virgin so long. It's ludicrous to keep up the pretext. You're terribly involved in world assignations and everybody knows it. You've slept with all the big powers in military uniforms and you've taken the sweet life of all the little brown fellows in loincloths and cotton trousers. When they've resisted, you've yelled rape. Being one of the world's big vampires, why don't you come on out and say so, like Japan and England and France and all the other nymphomaniacs of power? <laughs> 